0: Hello, my name's Tom Boone.
1: And I'm Joanna Bailey.
0: Welcome to a brand new episode of the Simple Flying Podcast, where we'll give you the lowdown on the latest news from the world of commercial aviation. Here's what we've got for you this week.
1: Coming up today, the giant is back in Japan. Tom will tell us all about its return, while I recap the highlights from my recent conversation with the founder of Boom Supersonic.
0: I'll share some news from Lufthansa and its cargo operations, while Joe looks at an interesting South African airline with big expansion plans.
1: Finally, Tom will share his behind-the-scenes peek at the new Terminal 3 for Frankfurt Airport.
0: So now you know what's in store, let's get on with the show. And I know we always joke about the A380, but I actually Mm. have some genuinely exciting... A380 news that I think people will be interested in this week. Um, okay. <laughs> and that is that um, it's not one of these like tenuous, like, oh, I found a reason to talk about the A380. This is actually news. <laughs> um, a or All Nippon Airways, whatever one you want to go with, they've finally confirmed that the A380 is coming back. And what I mean by that is to regular scheduled flights, because... Since the start of the pandemic, we've had lots of um, charter flights, uh, so-called flights to nowhere, and we've also had uh, a couple of non-regular scheduled flights to Hawaii last summer. But let's have a look at what's happening. So basically, from July 1st, the A380 is going to be back flying for the carrier. Um, As has always been the case, it's only going to fly from Tokyo Narita to Honolulu and back. Um, Don't expect like a huge... A380 timetable right away though for until at least the start of the October timetable Um, and bear in mind that's several months away maybe half a year away whatever so um, could change before then Um, but as things stand until at least the end of the summer timetable in October, there'll be a flight on a Friday and a Saturday. Um, NH 184 is going to leave Narita at 8.10 um, in the evening and then land in Honolulu at 8.45 on the same day. So nice little bit of time traveling there for any uh, passengers on that flight. And the return obviously um, leaves at 11.35 and then re- uh, um, lands at 2.50 the next day. And, um, So what does this mean? This means that only one A380 is really needed um, because of the the time to fly to Honolulu and back is less than 24 hours, although you get confused with the timings of uh, the flights with the dateline. What I find interesting is that I don't think um, ANA will just take one A380 and leave the others in storage. And that's because throughout the whole pandemic... um, Uh, they've been flying the two that they had at the start of the pandemic. You know, just, if you just look at charter flights in 2022 alone, uh, the blue one, uh, Lani, uh, which is the oldest one, that's done four charter flights so far this year. Um, emerald green called Kai has done 11 and the brand new Sunset Orange one has done a single flight since it was delivered from Airbus because Airbus basically delivered it I think in um, twenty late 2020 on paper but then But it um, didn't leave Toulouse, yeah, did it? It didn't leave Toulouse for another year until like October mm. last year um, so it flew to Japan and it's done one flight since then so I kind of if I had to put money on it I would put money on the blue and the green one Um being used for these Honolulu services and maybe the Sunset Orange one being saved, but who knows? Maybe they'll want to use the nice new one um, and finally, finally get it out of the box. Um, it's quite interesting because um, you know the reason the A three hundred and eighty was taken off the route was because border closures meant that no travellers were on this um, on this um, trip, and it's uh, mainly. Um, for tourist traffic. Um, I did look at the numbers and they've got quite a bit of competition on the route. So, Hawaiian Airlines flying several times. Um, Japan Airlines, their big rival is also there, mm. as well as Zip Air Tokyo. Um, yeah, of course. Yep, and you've also got United Airlines, although they're a code share partner with ANA, so that's less mm. competition mm. than More the others.
1: More <laughs> Yeah,
0: exactly. But it's, it's quite interesting because... Basically, the idea of getting the the Free A380s was that they would only operate this route and it would allow them to um, fly from Honolulu to Japan and back, or Japan to Honolulu and back twice a day with the Airbus A380. This was mm. going to... Um, because if you look at the numbers, during the summer of 2018... Um, ANA operated 15% of the seats available between Japan and Hawaii, and with these A380s and the full schedule, they were meant to up this to 25%. So, be interesting to see because you know, like right now, it's just two a week rather than two a day. So, that's still they've still got quite a build up to go, and it'll be interesting to see how far how far they do go.
1: Mm, definitely. And uh, it would be a shame if they didn't go back to <laughs> the regular kind of um, multiple yeah. flights a week because well, um, it's going to have too many A380s and that's, yeah. that's sad.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't see the A380s being sent anywhere else anytime soon. But, you know, we did mm. see Willie Walsh earlier this week saying that IATA now expects the full recovery in 2023 as opposed to 2024. So, mm-hmm. some hopeful signs there. I know I've already done more flying this year than I did in the whole of 2020. So, (laughs) things are looking up.
1: Definitely. Definitely. Well, I wanted to look up um, a bit further ahead into the future um, because I had the opportunity to meet the founder and CEO of Boom Supersonic, um, a guy called Blake Scholl. Um, If you haven't heard of Boom Supersonic, this is the Denver-based startup looking to bring back supersonic travel for passenger planes.
0: I would say, Um, if you haven't heard of Boom Supersonic, are you really reading Simple Flying? (laughs)
1: Yes. So, their first passenger plane will be the Overture, um, which is scheduled to begin flight testing in 2026 with a view to entry into service in 2029. And amazingly, despite everything, COVID, the supply chain issues, and now, of course, the war in Ukraine, everything remains on track for that entry into service date. We'll have to see how it plays out over the next sort of uh, five or six years. But at the moment, it is looking like the end of the decade. We'll see supersonic travel back for the first time in years, which is very exciting. Um, At the moment, they haven't gotten an overture, of course. They rolled out the XB1, which is Mm. the one-third size prototype. It's the kind of demonstrator for all the technologies. That rolled out in 2020 and has been undergoing ground testing ever since. And actually, they're already 80% of the way through everything they need to do on the ground. So, they've had the engine spooled up. They've been doing taxi tests and things like that. Um, And it will be in the air by the end of this summer. I should think. So very very exciting times. Obviously, there's a long way to go, but plenty of things are happening already. And the company recently announced they're going to be opening their super factory, as they call it, in Greensboro. Mm. Um, And we'll be breaking ground on that later this year. This will be the heart of the production for the first overtures. Um, So it was really exciting to talk to Blake about how everything's been going and what the roadmap is from here out. But I had to ask him, you know, why now? Why Supersonic? Do we really need it? Um, he maintains that people always love to fly faster. He reckons nobody wants to spend more time than is necessary on an aeroplane. I mean, I'd beg to differ. When you're in the <laughs> Etihad well, you know, business class, yeah. If
0: you're if you're in the apartment on the Etihad A380, yeah. then maybe. But if you're right at the back of a uh, economy uh, all economy A330neo. hmm.
1: Exactly. Exactly. But no, I do agree, and I think the business case was always there. Even with the Concorde, you know, things it was full. It was it was popular, Mm. and businessmen could see the benefit in spending the money to get to their meetings quicker because it meant they could get home the same day, or they could have more time to do business. And so, the business case has always been there. But obviously, the plane itself wasn't sustainable. Now. Boom wants to change all that. So, they reckon that thanks to technological advancements and advancements in materials... It will be a lot cheaper to fly on Overture than it was on Concorde. In fact, they're anticipating tickets will be sold for around a quarter of the price. That means that we'll be Hmm. in the realms of normal transatlantic business class tickets. You know, the same way that most business people fly across the pond, um, they'll be able to pay that same amount of money, but to get there in half the time, uh, twice the speed. (laughs) I couldn't decide which way to go with that one then.
0: You've got there in the end. <laughs>
1: I've got there in <laughs> the end. That's all that matters. <laughs> but of course, to be fit for the future any plane that is being designed today needs to have sustainability at its heart. Um, You know, we we are facing the biggest challenge for aviation um, to reduce its CO2 footprint and to shake off this image of it being a massive world polluter. And as a firm, Boom Supersonic has promised to be completely carbon neutral in all its operations by 2025, which is some time ahead of most others. So that's a really good sign. Hmm. But most importantly, of course, they're designing the plane itself to be sustainable. Every single bit of material that's used in its production will have a strategy built in for recycling at the end of its life. And that's even before they started building the first plane. Um, I find that really interesting because, of course, carbon composites are very difficult to recycle. Mm. So, the fact that they're kind of thinking about that already, I think that's you know very intelligent and absolutely what we need manufacturers to be doing. Um, most importantly, the plane will be designed to run on 100% sustainable aviation fuel. Obviously, there's a lot going on with SAF right now and lots of talk about it. And one of the biggest problems is there just isn't enough of it. And what there is, is so expensive. Mm. Airlines just can't survive on, you know, trying to run their planes with more SAF. So, we had a really interesting talk about this and how Boom is working to stimulate the market and ensure that there is enough SAF available when the overture does start to fly. Um, So, they're partnering with various suppliers. They recently announced a partnership with a company called Prometheus. Um, These guys are the supplier of the third generation SAF. I'm not entirely sure what generation one and two were, but this is sustainable fuel produced by carbon capture technology. So, from my very basic understanding, please don't write in if I've got this entirely wrong, it involves using green electricity to produce liquid fuels using the carbon that's already in the atmosphere hmm. so by that nature it's entirely replenishable um, completely sustainable and Scholl noted that because solar power is getting so cheap now um, it's actually eventually going to be cheaper to produce this type of sustainable aviation fuel than it is to produce fossil fuel and hmm. um, you know of course that's you know, I, I can't say whether that's true or not because I'm not an expert on SAF, but I have asked our sustainability journalists to have a look into it. Um, and hopefully, we'll be able to produce some commentary on that soon. But really interesting, I thought, I'd not heard of carbon capture being used to produce SAF. And if, the, if this does have truth to it, it's really getting over a massive hump for the entire industry. So, mm. you know, really good that um, a company like Boom is putting its money where its mouth is and supporting that. Mm. Um, but finally, on this topic, there's, of course, the question of the noise and specifically the sonic boom itself. Um, as we know, that was one of the reasons people love to hate Concorde um, and one of the reasons it could never go supersonic over land. So, in terms of general noise, the Overture is apparently being designed to already exceed the most stringent noise regulations. So, it's kind of trying to get over that notion of windows rattling as the Concorde comes in to land at Heathrow, you know, mm. um, and will be a, a normal volume airplane when it arrives at airports. In terms of the boom, his plan is to make it where people can't hear it for now. So, it will be over the ocean, um, which is, of course, the same strategy that Concorde used. Mm. Eventually, um, they do want to be able to fly supersonic everywhere. And there is technology in the works that will eliminate the sonic boom. Um, Although Blake did admit it's not there yet and it's not accelerating as fast as he'd like but eventually there will be an overture two, which will employ um, boomless <laughs> supersonic operations and we'll be able to fly supersonic everywhere but even over land even at subsonic speeds it's around 20% faster than the planes we've got today so it's still going to provide very rapid transport and uh, yeah I'm really looking forward to seeing it coming to fruition.
0: Mm. Well, I know Lufthansa is certainly also looking at making um, SAFs from thin air. So I think there must be some substance to that. And um, speaking of Lufthansa and future planes, I wanted to talk about Lufthansa's big deal this week um, because, you know, we had their quarter of one results last week and their AGM this week. But I think the really interesting thing was um, not either of those but the fact that Lufthansa placed another big order with Boeing so I'm going to briefly talk about the less exciting bit (laughs) Um, as far as I'm concerned uh, maybe other people would find it more exciting but um, you know um, Lufthansa is taking an extra uh, 787-9 passenger aircraft to kind of compensate for the delay to the 777-9. Because obviously, you know, earlier this week, um, or not even this week, um, recently Boeing said the whole program's delayed and that's creating implications for several airlines um, around the world. But the thing that I... I mean, we discussed that on last week's podcast, so I won't really dive into that too much. But the thing I found really interesting was that Lufthansa actually ordered seven Boeing 777X freighters. So, um, you know, they're now the third uh, customer for this. Um, Qatar Airways launched the product with a firm order earlier this year, and then Ethiopian Airlines made a memorandum of understanding. Um, So, Lufthansa becomes like the second airline to really go for it, but the third to say, we want it. Um, What I find really interesting, though, is that Lufthansa is really de- um, developing its sing- uh, its um, cargo fleet in a single way. So, you know, before it had the MD-11s and the 777 freighters. Um, they do have the A321 freighter capacity, but I'm kind of not including that in this because they're technically operated by Lufthansa CityLine, um, So, Lufthansa Cargo is going to be an all-777 operation. Um, They're going to take three uh, normal 777Fs before the current product. Um, One of these is a second-hand one, which could come as soon as July, but the remaining two aircraft are going to be built as new from Boeing. And... You know, we know Boeing has capacity to do this because they said they were going to pause 777X productions, um, which would give them more capacity to build freighters. Um, So I guess that's a win-win for Lufthansa. And in terms of the freighters, you know, the 777X, Lufthansa is expecting to get the first one in 2025. That's the passenger dash nine. Now, the cargo one is based on the Dash 8, so it's the 777 Dash 8F. And Lufthansa is actually expecting to get the first of these uh, in 2027 with all deliveries by 2030. So I think that's quite interesting because when I was sitting in on the Boeing pre Dubai Air Show briefing in November, um, a couple of the executives kind of mentioned that. Um, we could see the freighter coming before the Dash 8. And I don't think this is necessarily confirmation of that. But looking at that timeline, you know, um, two years after certification of the Dash 9 for the Dash 8 freighter, it does seem like that could be the case. Um, I also found it interesting because, you know, I think this this deal is, you know, it's not the biggest deal, 777 seven But I think it's um, a big win for Boeing in terms of what it means you know, recently we've seen some high profile customers switching to Airbus, you know, Singapore Airlines was uh, flying the uh, 747 freighters, Air France, the 777 freighters, they've both gone for the A350 freighter. And, you know, it wouldn't be absolutely wild to see Lufthansa going for the A350 freighter because yes, they've got the existing 777 freighters, but they also do have an existing A350 passenger fleet. So, you know, there's likely going to be some uh, lots of cross compatibility for that. And um, I think it also shows... That You you know, like we've had a lot of um, rhetoric from some airline CEOs that the delays to the Boeing um, 777X program are essentially getting ridiculous at this point. Um, I'm not going to say they are or they aren't, but I think this clearly shows that Lufthansa is still completely behind the 777X. Because, you know, if they weren't happy about their passenger aircraft being delayed, why would they go and place an order for the same type as a freighter? Um, so I think that that's quite a sort of big impactful order for Boeing, even though it's not huge. Um, In terms of the freighter itself, you know, it's going to have a range of 4,410 nautical miles, which comes out roughly 8,167 kilometers, and it's going to be able to carry a payload of 118 tons. So this gives the the aircraft a similar capacity to a Boeing 747-400 freighter, but it uses 25% less fuel. Um, Lufthansa also mentioned that the plane can take 17% more cargo by volume than the existing triple seven freighters, so it seems like a win-win in my books.
1: Mm, definitely, I'm excited to see it arrive, and I think uh, I will yeah. be too. <laughs> I will be there <laughs> You're gonna with have my camera. Both sorts of triple seven X flying into Frankfurt, which will yeah. be exciting. So, uh, yeah, good luck to them. Mm. Let's hope Boeing can stick with its timeline now.
0: <laughs> Who knows?
1: So, I wanted to talk a little bit about an airline that we I don't think we've ever mentioned on the podcast, actually, um, and it's SEMA, which is um, a privately owned airline operating in South Africa. Uh, they're based out of OR Tambo Airport in Johannesburg, and they operate a fleet of just 13 aircraft, all from the CRJ and Dash 8 families. Um, So, they actually did a little podcast with our friend John Howell from AviaDev this week um, that I found really interesting, actually, because they talked a lot more about the state of the industry in South Africa and beyond, um, as well as some really exciting expansion plans for the airline itself. Um, So... To set the scene, obviously, the pandemic has been incredibly disruptive in South Africa. Um, prior to COVID, it supported 364,000 jobs in the country in 2019. But of course, all the disruption that's been going on um, meant about 80% of those jobs were either put on ice or furloughed or otherwise at risk. Um, however, there are some green shoots of hope emerging. Um, since last August, the CEO of the airline, who is a chap called Miles van der Molen, says that the recovery has been pretty much sustained. There's been the occasional pullback, but nothing too severe. Internationally, there are still some restrictions that can be a bit inconveniently, but inconvenient, but domestically, there aren't any, of course. Um, so, the numbers that he was suggesting is between 65% and 77% of pre-COVID domestic traffic, which is pretty good when you consider what's happened in South Africa and the amount of capacity that's actually been pulled out of the market. Um The CCO, who is a chap called Paul Boats, um, said that actually you're also seeing a new kind of um, confidence in the travellers that are booking flights as well. So, there was at one point a trend of booking just 24 hours before the flight's departure because people were so uncertain about whether the flight would take place or, you know, whether they'd be able to get a refund if it didn't. Now, it's moved out to about 10 days, almost two weeks, which is still a fairly short booking window, but it does show that things are moving in the right direction direction. Um, So, Cape Town was actually noted to have welcomed 27,000 passengers through its doors just last weekend, which is about 70% or just over of pre-pandemic numbers. So, I think, you know, the signs are that South Africa is definitely getting back to normal. Um, But... What's really interesting for me is because of all the changes that have gone in in South Africa, it's actually given airlines like Semair a really kind of new opportunity to expand a lot more. So, as we know, Mango is no more. South African Airways has had significant restructuring and is a lot smaller than it was. South Africa Express has been closed down. Comair, as we know, has had a great deal of turbulence. They were grounded for a little while. They're back now, mm. um, but it's Got not been of their an easy run.
0: Only a three um, Boeing. 737 MAX.
1: They did. They're very one sole mm. airplane um, in British Airways livery. So, um, you know, for SEM Air, as I say, this creates an opportunity and a more level playing field than it was trying to compete on previously. Um, so, you know, Miles noted that um, it's, there is less artificially funded com- competition was mm. the wording he used. You know, I think we can both understand what he meant with that. Um, and it hasn't been easy to expand through the pandemic um, because I don't know if you knew this, Tom, but South Africa has been without an International Air Services Licensing Council since March last year, which is shocking, I don't even shocking, know what that really. means. So.
0: So, <laughs> no, I don't um, know that.
1: <laughs> so the council, it's basically like the CAA. It's responsible for awarding or revoking traffic lights rights, sorry, to airlines in South Africa. Having no council in place means that airlines like SEMair can't apply to operate new routes, um, particularly international routes, uh, but also domestic ones. And the airlines that have been granted traffic lights get to hold on to them even if they're not serving those routes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it was finally appointed a new IASLC in March this year. But of course, there's a massive backlog of applications to work through before they get fully up to speed. Um, nevertheless, SEMair is keenly preparing its applications for new international routes and is already thinking about fleet plans to support expansion too. Um, So, the airline recently took delivery of its second CRJ 900, which is the largest plane it operates at present. Um, And it's also saying it's going to take another Dash 8400 in the future weeks. Um, but is that as big as the airline's going to go? Uh, not necessarily. As Miles noted, they're expanding those fleets first uh, because obviously it's easier to add additional planes to an existing fleet. But once they're at the size they want, they're going to be looking at a larger type as long as market conditions don't go in the negative direction. Mm. Um, so obviously, the step up from the CRJ and the Dash 8 would take SEMA into the realms of the E-jets or maybe even the popular Airbus A. 2020. Um, it remains to be seen which way it will jump, um, but I really think you know post-pandemic STEM air has the opportunity and the ambition to make waves in the market in South Africa and further beyond. Um, so definitely one to watch over the next couple of years. Mm. While we're on the subject, if you want to hear more from Paul and Miles, um, you can tune into the forthcoming Dev Africa Route Development Conference 2022. This is taking place in Cape Town from July 29th. Uh, sorry, from June. 29th to July the 1st. And it's the sixth edition of the conference where airlines and airports get together to collaborate and make changes for a better connected Africa. So, if you want to know more about that, please head to www.aviationdevelop.com forward slash Africa.
0: Cool. Well, I wanted to come back to Europe for my last topic and just to sort of briefly Round it up. I got to do something quite fun last week. So um, I went to Frankfurt Airport. I mean, wow, that's amazing. Tom's never done (laughs) that before. Um, No, but actually I did go to um, the Fra Lounge, uh, which is a new sort of... um, events venue on the edge of the aircraft it's like outside of the secure area but it's uh, like right on the boundary and gives great views of the the airport um, so nice. i actually want to just host an event there just to use it more <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway that wasn't why i went um I went there and I got on a bus and it took us to Terminal 3, um, which is still obviously under construction. But Pier G, uh, which is just one of the the three piers that are currently um, envisioned for the airport, they've finished building that now. Um, it's quite funny because they've finished building it now. Um, so now it's finished being built. They have temporarily decommissioned it because they have it, but they don't need it because of lower traffic numbers and whatnot. And probably because it was kind of designed as a bit of a low cost place and Ryanair's said goodbye um, you know um, well anyway di- we went you in to see griff. it yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we went in to see it and obviously the forecourt hasn't finished being built yet so we kind of entered via a side door down the bottom and um, And we walked up some um, stairs, ended up in this sort of small departure hall with just about 22 desks, I think, um, check-in desks. But there were carts and carts filled to the brim with bags. Um, We'll get to this in a bit because it's quite exciting, but... um, You know, we saw the check-in hall and then we walked towards where security check is going to be. And this I found quite interesting because, you know, they're going to have nine security lanes. And these are already actually all marked out on the floor plan. Because in Germany, every public room has a floor plan of how to get out if there's a fire. Um, And I just found it fascinating because it's just essentially a huge, big, empty warehouse right now. But the floor, the fire escape floor plan already says there'll be a security check here, a security check here, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so we went through security without coming through security because it's just a big empty hall. Um, And you basically end up in this, um, this big, long corridor. It's, I think, about 400 meters long now. They can add an extra 200 meters to it. And right now, you kind of end up in a wavy duty-free area. It's not as bad as Stansted, where they force you to walk through the whole duty-free shop before you can even enter the sort of departure lounge. Um, You know, I think you can kind of go left or right if you want to. Um, But, you know, you walk past that. Obviously, there's no shops there yet because it's not going to open until at least 2026. They can bring it forward. But, you know, to put everything into the airport, into the terminal, it's going to take 12 months. So they can't do that right now. Um, but we kind of continued on. Uh, we got to the gate areas and obviously they don't have any jet bridges. So what they have is kind of like a Stansted situation where you just walk out across the, the apron to the aircraft and, um, they have a mix of Schengen and non-Schengen gates. Uh, so halfway down, there's a passport control because Germany checks people in and checks people out. Um, what I found interesting, though, is these gates in the middle, they've kind of constructed them in such a way that they can open and close doors to uh, mix them between being a Schengen gate and a non-Schengen gate. Um, after that, you know, um, you arrive. If you're a Schengen passenger, you end up in the departure lounge because they can mix, um, and you've got to find your way to the departure bit, uh, if you're non-Schengen, then you are directed upstairs to the arrivals flow. Um, what I was going to say, actually, is um, Schengen departures, they only have um, six desks right now. Two of them are for e-gates and the rest are for all other passports, and just given the experiences I've had over in Terminal 2, I think if there's lots of non-Schengen flights departing all at once, that's going to be horrible. Um, the good news for arriving passengers is that there are much more Schengen uh, visa or Schengen passport non-Schengen passport gates, God, <laughs> where am I going, um, for all of these people. Once you go past that, you know, you've got to walk down corridors. It's like Terminal 1 and 2. If you like Terminal 1 and 2 with the endless corridors, you're going to love this, this <laughs> airport too. Um, it's essentially one long corridor with no travelators. Um, go- they're kind of going um, for the look and feel of, I think it's German urban living. Um oh. A German urban lifestyle, sorry. And basically what that means is there's a lot of concrete and not much else. Um, I Good think grief. they are going to be adding some more decoration, but I think it's going to stay pretty concretey. So Fairly
1: um, breach list.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, once you've gone past passport control, you then mix with the Schengen arrivals and go down another long corridor and down an escalator. And you arrive in the baggage hall, which right now only has three bags, uh, baggage belts, The other thing I found really fascinating was that they were testing the baggage system on the day that we visited. And I'm not sure if this is coincidence or if they planned it, so we had something to look at. Um, But it's quite interesting because, you know, if you ever thought the bags get put into the baggage system when arriving and then get directed to the belt, this isn't the case here, you know, they get driven right to the belt and then just put on it um, straight away. Um, But for the departing bags, it was fascinating because there were people upstairs, we went back up to the check-in area and um, there were people at every single check-in desk, but they weren't putting them through as, you know, like when you're checking in at a normal airport, there'll maybe be one bag from this desk and then one from that in like 20 seconds. They were doing Mm. bag, 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 bag on every single one, essentially flooding the system with bags. And it was just (laughs) insane to see how many bags there were here, there and everywhere. Um, But, you know, I have so much more to say and not so much time to say it. So if you are interested in sort of seeing some pictures inside the terminal and reading a bit more, do check out our article on simpleflying.com.
1: Mm, Definitely. Uh, Very interesting. Thank you, Tom. Uh, Well, I think that's all we've got time for on today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and welcome any feedback at podcast at simpleflying.com.
0: For more great content, you can visit our website at simpleflying.com or find us on social media. Simply search for Simple Flying.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a rating on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.
0: Bye.